Uh, once again, uh, we are going through the book of Acts. Uh, we have been here for a little bit, and we are looking uh, right now through a section in the book of Acts that is speaking about uh, the nature of the church, and it's describing for us this Jerusalem church. This is the first church, really. And we are, we are seeing uh, what the church is and, and what it is hoped to be. I'm going to read a little bit, and then we're going we're gonna to begin. And so we're in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, to chapter 5, verse 11. If you, if you have a copy of the scriptures, either a physical copy or on your phone, you're welcome to follow along with that. There are, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you if you need one. But let's read together Acts 4, uh, 4.32 to 5.11. Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought, them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yeah, for so much. And Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. What a passage. What a passage. I was uh, doing a leadership class a number of years ago, and we were going through the book of Acts, and we got to this passage and we read it, and I asked them, oh, well, okay, what do you think this is teaching us as the church here? And uh, Peter Eddy was the guy who said it. He said uh, that we should train ushers to be pallbearers, basically. He said we should, we should be ready for if God were to strike one of us down in our midst at any time we are gathering. Um, it's an interesting passage. We're going to look at it in a second. But I, I do want to, to kind of prime the pump a little bit here with you guys by what is, the, what is your greatest frustration with the church? What, what is your greatest frustration with this church, <laughs> with any other church that you've been a part of, or, or just with your church in, with the church in general? Uh, there, there will be a lot of things. It might be the pastor goes on too long. Probably that's our greatest frustration here. Um, I would venture to guess that for many of us, particularly young people among us, particularly even kids who grow up in the church, I would venture to guess that one of our greatest frustrations of the church is not that we don't get out in time you know, to watch the football game or not that we don't get out in time to get the good reservation at the restaurant. I would venture to guess that most of our greatest frustration with the church is that people do not and are not living what they say they believe. 
all the other frustrations we have with the church are material. But that is the type of frustration that can actually put a millstone around your neck, discourage little ones from advancing in the faith, and, and, and lead to the frustration not only that we feel and experience with the church, but the frustration and the anger that is felt outside of our walls as the church, as you read in newspapers, as you hear in media of yet again another church leader or another church member who says they believe one thing but is actively living in a manner opposed to and undermining the gospel. I find that is devastating. I find that is the thing that makes me question at times. What are we doing here? And why are we here? And is anybody here genuine? And that's the sort of thing that is crushing to my faith and, and possibly to, to yours. And, and this section of the book of Acts is Luke's writing to us, this church, us, today, he's writing to us, and he's explaining to us what the church is to be. And, and we've been seeing this already as we've been kind of going through Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4, and there's been one thing so far that Luke has, has focused on. What's the one thing that he's focused on so far? Come on, chapters 3 and chapter 4, there's really one thing that he's trying to describe that characterizes this Jerusalem church, this church that changes and shocks the world. What was the thing that we've been focused on over the last couple of weeks? Word starts with B, ends with oldness. Right? The Jerusalem church was, so far what he's painted for us a picture was this Jerusalem church was a bold church. They had received the Spirit just as Jesus had promised them, and they had, they had gone out and the Spirit was overflowing, and so they could not stop speaking about what they had seen and what they would, had heard. And so far all the opposition, so far the only danger that we have seen in the book of Acts, the danger to the church is that from, from outside, that, that people will say, get out, or people will say, shut up, and people will, will try to shut, us, shut them down. And they said, we, we can't help it. What we have seen and what we've heard and what we've experienced in Christ it makes it so that we cannot stop speaking of what we have seen and heard. So Luke has put the spotlight on the boldness of the church of Acts. You might have also put, one of your answers might have been, you might have just been trying to say it, you might have also put prayerfulness. I would have, I would have accepted that. Okay, because they are connected. The, the prayerfulness, the filling of the Spirit, and the Spirit filling them with, the, with boldness. I, I, I would accept those as, as, as If you're on Jeopardy, like that guy from Ottawa this week, uh, I would have accepted those as, as answers as well. But here in Acts chapter, the end of Acts chapter 4 and, and chapter 5, Luke is trying to paint a picture for us of what the church is to be by, remember, uh, the Jerusalem church, this is a period now over years where Luke is only taking one or two or three incidents out of the life of this Jerusalem church. There's so much that happens in the life of a church, and Luke doesn't tell the story of everything that happens. Luke selects a few stories and then paints this picture for us of, of this is what the church is to be, so that when we hear from the rest of the book of Acts that the apostles went out and, and uh, when the apostles went out and were planting churches, we know, oh, these are the things that they were doing. And so today we're going to look, Luke highlights two things that we're going to be looking at as we're looking at what marks a genuine believer, what marks a genuine believer uh, that make up this church. And the first thing we're going to, the first answer we're going to get as we go through the text from Acts chapter 2, 4, 32 to 37, we're going to look at this and then we're going to unpack it a little bit, is that there is a generosity that marks us as God's people. There's a generosity arising from the gospel, freely offered, that marks God's church. That's, that's what Luke is trying to show. And, and later, and actually I'm going to just tell you two words. And if, if, you, if you zone out and you don't hear anything else from the message today, here's two words. Generosity and integrity. That's the picture that the Holy Spirit is painting for us today 
of the church that God's, call, that's God's called us to be is a church of generosity and a church of integrity. This story of these, two, of these people, Barnabas first, and then Ananias and Sapphira, Barnabas, the picture of the generosity of the church, Ananias and Sapphira are a warning that God requires an, an integrity in his church. So generosity and integrity are the two, the two keys we're going to look at today. So first, generosity. There's a generosity arising from the gospel, freely offered, that marks a church. We're going to unpack that sentence in four ways. Thanks, Ellie. You're ahead of me. So that's good. There's a generosity. And it says in Acts chapter 4, 32, what, now what the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in in common. I, I know I told you the word generosity. I know I said, like, remember those two words. I'm not actually even sure that the word generosity is, a, is the pro, an appropriate word to describe what's going on here. Because when I think of generosity, I think of, here's my stuff, and now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it with you. And it's a little bit, doesn't even capture what's actually going on here. What's actually going on here is they all have their stuff, but none of them even see that their stuff is their own. And when it comes to the brothers and the sisters among them in the church, and remember what's happening in the Jerusalem church right now, you had uh, the gospel, the, the Holy Spirit filling the, the room of 120. They go out, they start preaching. There's crowds and crowds and crowds of people who've come to Jerusalem, and uh, they're, they're there for a festival. And they hear the word of the Lord, and they come to Jesus, and they stay in Jerusalem. And so you've got this, uh, imagine, uh, okay, this summer in Ottawa, I, I think I've, I've used this illustration before, this summer in Ottawa over, the, over Canada Day weekend, Ottawa does not have one hotel room. If you want family and friends to come and visit you that weekend, good luck. There is not one hotel room, in fact, I've talked to people who, uh, who do Air, Airbnb, you guys know Airbnb? There's literally like hardly any even Airbnb rooms in the city that week, this summer. Uh, the city is like going, I don't know what we're going to do. So they've opened up parking lots. They've opened up parks and they've just said tent there. But the city's like, give me 75 bucks and you can tent there, right? Like it's a city, right? But there's every space you can fill this summer will be filled. And that's kind of what Jerusalem is like. And so everybody comes to this big festival and they come and they, they hear about Jesus and then they want to remain because the only people who are teaching about Jesus in the world are the apostles, and so you saw in Acts 2.42 that they're meeting together, they're in each other's homes, they're feeding one another, and that actually takes quite a bit of finances. And so what's happening here is with this need in front of them, this need in front of them that is a church need, they say, well, this stuff that God has given me is just simply stuff that God has given me. It's, I don't consider it my own. And Luke is, is pointing out to us that the, the mindset, the mindset of the people is that we are one. And he says it very interestingly. Look really quickly at, uh, at verse 42. How many people right now, from your knowledge of the book of Acts, about how many people right now are filling this Jerusalem church? Uh, you might go to Acts 2, 42, around there, where it says 3,000 were added to their number that day. You might go to Acts chapter 3, which talks about after they do the miracle at the temple, 5,000 were added. 5,000, the number of the men was numbering 5,000. And so you might do a, a calculation and say, okay, well, but look at what he says here. And this is really interesting. It's, it's actually more clear in the original language of the New Testament. It actually says the number, the full number of those who believe we're heart and soul one. It's actually what the text says. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people there, but the full number of those who believed were heart and soul one. This is, this is more, it's a generosity in a sense. That's the word I wanted to use to paint this picture for you. But it's a generosity of unity. It's a generosity of family. 
It's a generosity of you have a brother or sister in your family. If your brother and sister was in need, you help them, not because you're generous, but because you're one, because you're family. And that's what's happening in the church at this time. They see heart and soul, heart and mind. They are one. And so when there's a need in front of them of those who are gathered as part of that body, they say, well, this is not mine. It's given to me by God here. And that's what's going on in this church. There's a generosity in the church, the type of generosity that sees brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters and meets needs and cares for them as one cares for themselves. There's a generosity. And this generosity arises from the gospel. That's the next point. Look at how verse 33, in fact, it's not very good if you look at this. If you look at your Bible, Notice verse 32 talks about the generosity that they have, and they, they consider themselves one. They had everything in common. And then verse 34 starts out, there was not a needy person among them. You could actually take out verse 33, and the paragraph would make complete sense. You could. If you read from verse 32 to verse 33, it's almost like take it out, and it would just you would never have known that verse 33 was in there. But in the middle of this, Luke is directed by the Holy Spirit to put verse 33 in there, right? And what's verse 33? Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And here's, and great grace was upon them all. So this generosity, this unity of generosity was not something that, that it, was, it was not because they were doing a capital campaign in their church. It was not because the preacher started preaching and saying, hey, we need you all to give. It, it wasn't that. It was what Luke draws our attention to is that the apostles were with great power proclaiming the testimony that Jesus rose from the dead. And as, as, as people were believing in Jesus, a great grace of salvation was falling upon them all. And that is how that, that engendered them, that 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 rose up in them so it bubbled over into how they treated their possessions and treated one another. That reminding us this brotherhood didn't, didn't come from a manipulation, it came from the simple and straightforward preaching of the gospel of grace. And I, and I would say it only would truly, this sort of generosity in the church would only come from a simple and straightforward preaching of the gospel of grace. What's the gospel? Well, the gospel begins with that God seeing how we had turned away from him in our sin and our rebellion and our rejection of him. God did not leave us to die in our sins, and God did not leave us to sit under his wrath and his justice and his anger towards sin. What God did was he gave God gave his son, the son of God, into this world. For God, John 3, 16, our verse, right? <laughs> for, John, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe, should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world that he gave. The gospel is that Jesus, although he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God, his divine status, as something to be grasped onto. But he emptied himself, and he, and he gave himself. He took on the form of a servant, giving himself, becoming obedient as a servant, even unto death, even unto death of a cross. Jesus himself, when he walked among us, said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I am giving. I am offering myself unto you. Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. We're reminded again and again and again and again that the gospel of grace is the gospel of a giving God. That the God who gives us life and the God who gives us breath and the God who gives us rain and the God who causes the rain to fall and the godly and ungodly is the God who has given his own son so that sinners like us that do not deserve it, that do not earn it, could be saved and brought into relationship with this holy God. And so Jesus says, freely you've been given, therefore, what? 
Therefore, freely give. Luke, in his gospel, in the gospel of Luke, again and again and again, ties, shows, emphasizes. It's not that it's missing in the other gospel, but Luke emphasizes that when we truly come to Christ, when we truly know God's grace, when we truly receive and understand God's gifts and God's giving nature, that we begin to be transformed in our relationship to our money, our relationship to our possessions, our relationship to our brother and sister, our relationship, everything is transformed. Paul says in Corinthians, what do you have that has not been given to you? And so this great grace was upon the church as they had, as they had seen, as they had heard testimony, as the apostles had borne witness to the resurrection of Christ, as people turned from their sin and they turned to Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, as their Master, as they received the grace and the gift of salvation, it changed them. If you're here today and you've not experienced that, I pray that you'd experience that today. I pray that you would know the grace of God towards you, the gift of God towards you in Jesus Christ. And that you'd believe that God caused him, that, that God set him on the cross for our sins. He died for our sins in our place. And that he rose again that we might have new life. And in believing that, I pray that you would have life in his name. And I pray that it would take root within you and it would transform you and your life now will be different. Your, 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 your job, your vocation, how you approach money, how you approach finances, how you approach your brothers and sisters in the church, everything will change. This generosity comes out of the gospel. And as it arises from the gospel, third, it's freely offered. You can go to the next one there, Zelig. It's freely offered. And, and I hope you can see this. Great grace was upon them all that they could do this, that they wanted to do this, that they enjoyed doing this, that they freely said, I've got some stuff. I can sell it and I can give it. And therefore people can be helped. And they love doing it. There's a joyful giving here. There was not, and, and look at this community that, that's going on. There's not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and they brought the proceeds of the sold. And it goes on to say, they laid them at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as they had need. It, but, but there's a, a point in this text, and the point that needs to be made, because when we get to the second part about integrity, it's important, is that this was freely offered. This was not, tax, it's tax season. How many of you guys have done your taxes so far? How many of you guys still have to do your taxes? How many of you guys are going to lie on your taxes? Don't tell me. I hope you don't, and we're going to get to that part. No, I'm just kidding. But this is not, there's no sword. There's no sword behind this giving here. This is not taxation. This is not even the apostles demanding a tithe or an offering. There's nothing in the text that, that says that this is something that needs to be done. In fact, later when, when Peter is calling out Ananias and Sapphira, what he actually says, he states it explicitly in, in chapter 5, verse 4. And you can go to the next slide there, Zelig. While it remained unsold. So he's saying to Ananias, why would you do this? While your land, while your land remained unsold, didn't remain, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? We are explicitly told here that even though the believers did not consider their possessions their own, that they were willing to bring them, willing to give them, willing to help out, willing to share, willing to be generous, this was not coerced. It was not forced. There was no sword saying, your property is not your own, give it to the church. That was not how this happened. In fact, Peter actually says, your property was your own. You, could have free, you, you were to freely bring what you could. There, there was no law, there's no rule, but, but, but this is what was happening. It was freely offered, because that's what happens when we know the gospel. When we know the gospel, it, we, you're not obedient because there's a sword hanging over your head. If you know Christ, if you know the gospel. What is happening is you've received the grace of Christ. Great grace is upon you. And from within you, you begin being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so you do the things that the law requires. You do the things that are good and godly and good in God's sight. Because there's a joy. Because the Spirit's producing it in you. Because he's the vine and we're the branches. And the life of Christ is flowing through us. And so it's free. It's freely given. And so there's a generosity arising from the gospel freely offered, which marks the church 
as God's people. And again, just to say this is the case that Luke is establishing, the Jerusalem church, as a model for us. And we see that this is actually the church. We, we do actually see here some of the church organization in helping the believers and doing this for one another. So they, there's, a, there's a church membership here. It says there's not a needy person among them. They had an understanding of, of whom they were to help and to distribute these funds among. It's not to say that the church is never, that the generosity of the church should not overflow into the communities around us. It is to say that the, that the number of the believers that were gathered together in heart and soul were one, and they knew they were taught by the Spirit of God to take care of one another. So there, there is a distinguished and definable church membership here, and there's a church leadership here. It says they, there was not a needy person among them, that's the church membership, for as many as their owners of lands or houses sold them and brought them the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So in this Jerusalem church, there's, there's a leadership that the apostles are overseeing as, as far as the, the, the collection and the dispersion of the funds. But later in the book of Acts, this is, this is transferred to others. It, in Acts chapter 6, the apostles are being overwhelmed with this ministry with this deaconette, they call it, with, with this ministry. They're being overwhelmed with it, and, and some widows were being overlooked, and they say, raise up for yourself. We're going to look at that passage next week. Later in the book of Acts, it's the elders of the church that are they're starting to, to, to function in this way. Right? So different people are doing this in the book of Acts, but we are. this is the church. This is marking an identifiable people of God that the generosity freely offered arising from the gospel, marks. And who is the example of this? The example of this is Barnabas, or Joseph, as he's called. So this is the guy. We often hear there's no heroes in the Bible. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. It's true, Jesus is the hero of the Bible. But Barnabas is a good guy. Barnabas is a really good guy. And, and, and we, he is set forward as, this is a, a bit of an example of, of what, a good, what a believer was who was who is changed by the Holy Spirit and, and who, who is freely meeting the needs of those around him. Thus, Joseph, who is called by the apostles Barnabas. And why is he called Barnabas? This is a cool nickname. When I was a youth, it, when, I was, when I was in high school, I learned about Barnabas and I thought, well, this would be cool. And I wish somebody would give me this nickname, but nobody ever has. So maybe I still got to work on this a little bit more. But, but Joseph, who is called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, what a cool nickname. And actually, every time you see Barnabas in the book of Acts, he's often encouraging those around him, which is really, really cool. There's this believer called Saul who we'll meet later. And Saul is a bad guy who is persecuting the church. And Saul becomes a Christian. And no one else wants to trust Saul. And Barnabas is actually like, no, I'll take you, Saul. And he takes him up to the leaders of the Jerusalem church and says, hey, I want you guys to meet Saul. He was a bad guy. He hated us. He persecuted us, but God's doing a work in his life, and, and, and he's an encourager. Later, that, that guy Saul, he goes and he's kind, of in, he's kind of like wandering in the wilderness for a while, and Saul goes and finds him and says, hey, I need you in Antioch, and he brings Saul alongside of him. Later, they go on a mission trip together. They go on the mission trips of the church together, and they've got this young man, John Mark, who goes with them, and John Mark actually abandons them along the way. And the next time they're going out on the second missionary trip, uh, Barnabas is like, hey, Paul, hey, Paul, I got a good idea. Why don't we take John Mark with us again? And Saul's like, or Paul's like, no, he's the guy that abandoned us. And Barnabas is like, yeah, but you don't understand. I'm Barnabas. This is what I do. Like, I encourage people and I bring them along. Like, that's, that's what I do. And so that, that's Barnabas. We'll see him again and again in the book of Acts. But so Joseph, who's called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas, is, this is, serves as an introduction to Barnabas, but also shows this is what the Holy Spirit does. This is what the Holy Spirit does within a church. This is what the Holy Spirit does within the people of God when we receive the grace of God, freely given in the gospel, and then we start turning our eyes toward one another in the church saying, how can we meet needs? Now, now we at OCBC, we have a couple ways of doing that. We have what's called a love fund if there are crises that are going on within our church family and those who our members of our church are related to. So there's a formal process, a formal love fund policy that, that if you're a member of our church, I hope you familiarize yourself with. It's, it's on our website. You can read it. 
uh, and you can know how to use it and make application for it. That's for big needs that arise within our community and, and those you might be connected with. But often what happens in our church is that it never even gets to that. What often happens is people, we might start discussing about whether somebody might want to bring a love fund policy forward, and somebody in our church will literally just say, I'll help. So sometimes we do our AGM, and it's like, oh, we didn't even use any of the love fund this year. What's the point? Why do we have it if we're not going to use it? And, and literally, I, as the pastor, sometimes know, well, the reason why we didn't use the love fund this year is because that person helped that person, and that person helped that person, and that person was going to be short on the rent, so these people helped them, and this person needed that. And that's what a church does. And we don't do it with the headlines of, hey, this is what we've given, and this is who we've helped, and we don't, we don't publish the newsletter like that. I do think there's ways that we could help one another to, to help each other. Um, I think one of the things I'd like to put up at the new church when we move over there in a couple months would be a nice bulletin board, which would be like a community bulletin board, which might be a place where somebody could say, hey, I'm, somebody, somebody's looking for somebody to, to rent out a room, or, or somebody has this thing that they are in need of, and, or somebody, there's this person at my work who, who needs some baby clothes, Can we, and, and we put it there. Right now, we kind of do that on our Facebook group. So we can do that. So join our church Facebook group, and sometimes you'll see those sorts of things on there. But we could do some more things to help each other help each other. But that's Barnabas, and that's the church, and that's the generosity of the church. And I hate chapter breaks in your Bible, because who's that, was it a comedian who used to do that? Where he's like, the reason, he tells a long, long story and then says, well, I told you that story to tell you this story. And that's what's going on here in Acts chapter 4 and 5. He tells us the Barnabas story. He points us and shows us the generosity of the church to tell us this Ananias and Sapphira story. And it's unfortunate there's a break because they're to set up, whereas Barnabas is set up for an example for us to follow, Ananias and Sapphira serve as examples for us as well, but to warn us to not follow in their footsteps. And so here's the part, second part of this message. There's an integrity expected by the gospel, fearfully rendered, that marks the church. There's a generosity arising from the gospel, freely offered that marks the church, and there's an integrity expected by the gospel, fearfully rendered, that marks God's people. And this is a message I think the church in our culture needs to hear. There's an integrity the, the whole point of Acts chapter 5, the whole point of this Ananias and Sapphira story, the whole point is that God commands his church to be a church of integrity. I mean, you read this story and it sounds unbelievable today. It seems unbelievably harsh today. And just to retell the story, because we read it a little bit ago, Ananias and his wife make this plan and they sell a field and they bring the proceeds to the apostles after they agreed to hold back a little bit of it for themselves. Now, we already said this was to be freely offered. But Peter, the Holy Spirit, reveals to Peter that something is not aright here. And, and what happens is Peter says, why would you do this, Ananias? Why would you lie to the Holy Spirit about what you're doing? Late, and he says, the, the field was yours. The field was, was yours. When it was in your possession, it was yours. You didn't have to sell it. And when you sold it, the money was yours. You didn't have to give it. But what they did was they presented it as if they had given all when in fact they held back for themselves. It was not about the money. It was not about the money at all. On the outside, think about this. On the outside, Barnabas, Barnabas looks this way. On the outside, Ananias and Sapphira look this way. As far as the treasurer's office in the church is concerned, both of them were key givers. Right? They both were giving and were giving. And we would put them both, maybe today we'd put their names both on a plaque. But it was not about the money. It was about their integrity. This is, on the outside, Ananias and Sapphira look like Barnabas, but God knows the heart. He knows the thoughts. He knows the intent of the heart. And God sees our Secret sins. There's no way Peter or the rest of the church would have known about this had not the Holy Spirit revealed it to them. But God sees our secret sins 
He sees the lies that we tell others. He tells the lies that we tell ourselves. And he knows them for the lies that they are. And it is so easy to put on a mask of appearances. It is so easy to put on a mask of fake Christianity and come to church and look like I've washed the outside of the cup, but the inside is still dirty. It's so easy, but, we, but never forget that God sees and knows our heart. Man, this week, even as I'm studying this, I don't like this. Because I get up in front of you guys each week. And there is. In North America, there's, you hear of pastors falling each week who have cleaned the outside of the cup and the inside is still dirty. And churches where they gather each week and the outside of the cup looks fine and the inside of the cup is still decaying. And our, and our, and our, and our world sees this. And I asked you before, what frustrates you most about the church? What frustrates me most about the church is where we're gathering together in Christ's name, but are we truly Christ's people? Integrity has been defined as who you are when no one is looking, but God sees. He sees Ananias and Sapphira. He sees the secret sin. And he has a problem with the integrity of the church. And like so much of the book of Acts, this is foundational. Like so much of the book of Acts, this is setting a foundation for everything else that's going to happen in the Jerusalem church. This is setting a foundation for everything that's going to happen as they go out into Samaria and Judea and the rest of the world. And this is setting a foundation for us. And what it's setting for is that God takes the integrity of his church seriously. That God did not set up a church. Christ did not set up his church to be a church that's just like what we consider to be the stereotype of the Pharisees. Christ did not set up his church that we'd be people who wash the outside of the cup while the inside of the cup is death. And God took this so seriously in this first generation of the church when it was so important that he lay the foundation of purity and he lay the foundation of integrity and he lay the foundation of truthfulness. God thought it was so important that he made an example of Ananias and Sapphira and they are actually struck down dead for their lack of integrity. We say, well, is that harsh? But think of the recourse through the centuries of God setting them up in this way as an example. So he gives the Jerusalem church a lesson they will not forget, and through the Jerusalem church, he teaches a lesson that echoes. God is a teacher. It's one of the things when I come to the Bible that really impresses me because I, I was a teacher for a while. And one of the things that I see as I go through the Bible is that God is a teacher. God is not above or below making an example in order that all can learn from and that's what's happening here with Ananias and Sapphira. This is the first generation. This is foundational. And it, the lesson echoes through history. God's church is a church and must be a church of integrity, not hypocrisy. And, and, and this is, there's integrity. Sorry, go on, next one. There's integrity expected by the gospel. And look at Peter's response again and again and again. Peter's, everything Peter says in this text is a question. Like everything Peter says, I'll, I'll read because there's some that, uh, that are not on the screen there. So, so Ananias comes in and Peter says, Ananias, why? Why? Why, would Satan, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why would you keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? He's trying to understand it. When it was unsold, it was still yours, Right? And after you sold it, you had the right to do what you want with it, right? And again, why? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? And then they bring Sapphira in. And again, Peter says to her, verse 9, it's not on the screen, I'll just read it. Again, what Peter says to Sapphira, his wife, how? <laughs> how is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? And, and Peter is, Peter's, Peter's bewildered by this. I believe he's dumbfounded by this. I believe it's never entered Peter's mind that a member of the church would do this, that would lie in this way, that would, that would be of so little integrity. And so Peter's, because there is the expectation of the gospel, 
that the Holy Spirit will be inside of us and that the Holy Spirit will engender transformation in us, that we will change. When you come to the gospel, you come as you are, but you might have heard some pastors say, God does not keep you there. He fills you with His Spirit. You begin having a mind and a heart change. And so it never enters into Peter's head that a person who could be a professing Christian would be lying in this way. And he's, all Peter wants to know is, Why? It's like Paul, remember in the book of Romans where they ask Paul, uh, there's a whole section of, uh, somebody might say, should I sin so that grace can increase? And what's Paul's answer? Paul's answer is, why? Why would you even ask the question? And and he says, don't you know that when you did those things, it led you to what? It led you to death. So why would you want to go back to them? And that's the response of a Christian when we see our hypocrisy and we say, well, why? And, and maybe you've seen that in brothers or sisters when they, you've called, you know, you've been with a friend and, and you've seen them walking and straying from Christ. And, and, and you're going, why? Why would you do this? It's true that none of us this side of heaven are perfected. And we all fall short of our confession from time to time, and so we all will act hypocritically at times. But when we do, we are called to repent. We are called, we should be driven back to Christ. And Ananias and Sapphira are given opportunity to repent. Sapphira particularly. She's given opportunity to repent, but in their refusal to repent, God sets them as examples to the church in the seriousness of how God takes our integrity. And so there's a, there's a integrity expected of the gospel, which is fearfully rendered. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And I don't know why it's repeated. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Some would argue that it's improper for a Christian to be fearful of God. You may have heard, you may hear people argue, well, God is love and and perfect love casts out fear. Or, Or you may hear somebody say that when the Bible says fear, the word is better translated awe or respect. And And both those things are true to a point. But in this passage, it seems to me, these people are seeing what has just happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And they're legitimately fearful in front of a holy God that the same fate might not befall them. I can't read the story of Ananias and Sapphira and not get from it that that there's a godly and proper fear of the Lord Even for the Christian, there's a proper terror that would come from falling outside of God's grace or from violating his holiness. When I hear of pastors or when I hear of Christians going and doing horrible and blasphemous sins against the holy name of Christ, I I often respond with a why, but also with a, is there no fear of God in front of their eyes? Is there no fear of God anymore in the pulpits of our country? And is there no fear of God anymore in the pews of our country? And and then that might explain why there's no fear of God outside of the walls of the church in our country. It says in verse 11 that the great fear not only spread among them, but all who heard those things, meaning the outsiders as well. I mean, I see this even in myself and how I counsel people. I don't know, maybe you guys haven't studied philosophy or anything, but who knows what a consequentialist is? As a system of ethics, a consequentialist is a person who would say, that's not right, you shouldn't do that because it will lead to bad consequences. And often, I find myself, in my parenting and in my um, counseling, I, 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 I often point people toward consequentialist reasons as to why or why not they should do some certain things. So like, give me a sin. I don't know, cheating on your taxes. Bring it up. It's tax season, right? You shouldn't cheat on your taxes because uh, you might get caught, 
because I could be a Kantian and say, well, if everybody did it, if everybody cheated on their taxes, the government went, you know, you're stealing from other people, really, because other people are contributing. I could come up with a whole bunch of different consequentialist reasons as to why you should not do it. The ultimate reason, as Christians, because we know God is the God of the universe and that God is ultimately holy and beyond all of us, and he's a terrifying God who could put an end to any one of us at any time, our ultimate reason for any of our ethics as Christians is because God is a holy God, and he has commanded us to not do that. Thou shalt not bear fault witness, because God is God. Now, I can, I can back that up with consequentialist reasons. Like, I could say, God is God, therefore, no. And here's other things that may happen to you if no. But Jesus says, don't just fear what can happen to your body. Fear God who can destroy your body and soul in hell. And there is a true and proper fear of God that needs to be before the eyes of us. I, I was listening to John Piper on this topic last night, and he spoke of... He told a story. I'll just give you the illustration. He said this would be like, think of a gigantic animal, like a predatory, I, I, I was, when he was talking about it, I was thinking about Jurassic Park 2. No, Jurassic World. I don't know if you've seen that movie. In this movie, there's this guy who tames dinosaurs, so not r r fiction, right? But, think of a giant predatory animal in front of you. What do you not want to do when there's a giant predatory animal in front of you? What do you not want to do? You don't want to just run. Ah! He will chase you, and he will eat you, and he will kill you. What you want to do is to stand by that animal, and, and John Piper talked about, and you walk with it. You walk with it. And I, no, I don't take this advice, because like, don't go out to the woods and see a bear and go, <laughs> Pastor Dan told me to go walk with you. Um, you, never, you never stop understanding that that is a terrifying, fearful, powerful creature. Right? But you stand in its presence and you walk with it. You don't startle it. You don't give it reason to chase you. And, and, and to me, the fear of God, I, I think of John 1 all the time. To me, the fear of God is this. When I sin, which I do as a Christian, when I, when I veer off the path, what do I do? The fear of God does not drive me to run away screaming from God. As a Christian, what the fear of God does, the fear of God drives me back to him. The fear of God drives me back to him where I come to him and I say, Lord, I know again I need your grace. Again, I need you. Again, Lord, I thank you that you are faithful and you are just to forgive sin and to cleanse unrighteousness because if you were not faithful and just to forgive sins, I would be fleeing in terror and running away from you and you would be devouring me. But you, God, are faithful. You are not only holy, you are not only the judge of the earth, but you are also the God of all grace. And the fear of God drives me to you. The fear of God makes me run to you because you are the God who has punished my sins in Christ already and therefore you are faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse and I walk with you. There is an integrity that is expected of the gospel that is fearfully rendered that is at the end also again that is to mark the church and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Again, this is not, uh, uh, the bottom line is, this is not stuff that we do. This is stuff that God does in us and through us. He's the vine. We are the branches, but he's producing in us a work and a fruit of righteousness. This is the church that Luke is praying and Luke is receiving from the Holy Spirit as he goes to the book of Acts. This is the vision of the church of God's people the people of Jesus Christ, that we'd be prayerful, that we'd be filled with the Spirit, that we would be bold, that we'd be a generous people who don't see our things as our health, but we see ourselves as one people, and that we would be people of integrity. And here's some opportunities for you today, and, and you can just go to the next slide, just go to the end there. Just, um, there you go, have that. Take your notes right there. But here's the opportunities today. Today, 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if there are secret sins in your life, confess them now. Come to Christ now. Repent of them. Say, God, I am sorry. I was trying to hide this from you, and now I see that I cannot. Lord, forgive me and change me. Christian here, if you're not Christian here today, your whole life right now, you need the grace of God. But Christian here today, if if you've been struggling with secret sin before you take from the Lord's Supper today, humble yourself before God's mighty hand. Do not take and eat still having your lies and your sins separating you from God. So your opportunity today is to confess secret sins to God. There's also opportunity every day for for you to bring what's called in Hebrews 13, the sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice of praise in that context is actually coming before God with humble hearts. Coming before God, praise from our lips and coming from God with the ability and the desire and the want to help meet the needs of others here. It may be that while I was speaking that God puts someone on your heart, a member of this church or even somebody outside of its walls, who you know has a need and that you can meet, and I would pray even today that you would listen to the Holy Spirit. He may be right now working in and through you that there would not be any needy person among us, that we'd be a church filled with generosity and integrity. We're going to move into a time of, of, of response we're going to bring a sacrifice of praise in singing. As we're singing, as you're hearing the word of God, as you're hearing the words that put our focus on Christ as we sing, you can pray where you are at as well. If you would need to, if you would want to, come forward and pray with either me or with one of our women. We'll be up here in the front row. I'd love to pray with you today if there's something God has put on your heart while, we've been, while I've been sharing with you from his word. There's also up here, we we take at the end of every service, we take the Lord's Supper together. It's a reminder that our salvation is not based upon what we have done, but upon the gift of God in Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today and if you know Jesus as your Lord, if you've professed him publicly through baptism, you're welcome to come through the music, come up, grab a cracker and a cup, and we will partake together at the end of our service. Also, our offering box is here. Our offering box is, is, is just this. It's for members and regular attenders of our church to meet the ongoing needs of our church and of our missionaries. Uh, And so it is. It's something that we do in order to contribute to the body of Christ here and overseas. Um, There's some funds that we have. We have a a building fund. Some of you guys made commitments uh, last year of of how we're going to, as a church family, participate in that. Our love fund, if if something, maybe today, I didn't know we had a love fund. I'd like to to put some toward that. You, you can do that. You can designate toward those different funds. But it's, it's, if you're visiting here today, that's, that's not for you. It's, it's for us as a church body to be that people of God that God's called us to be and, and have that responsibility in caring and meeting for the needs of the church and the people. So that's what we do. I'm going to call the worship team up, and I'd like to just close this message in, in prayer. Holy Spirit, you are the searcher of hearts. You are the counselor divine. You lead us.